Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Don't you remember like, you know, going to the mailbox and getting something that wasn't a bill or jury duty and, you know, words from a friend, uh, from a from family, from a spouse, from a boyfriend, something about letters that I, I still hold in high regard that, you know, maybe is a higher value than the disposable emails and texts, something on stationery, uh, your own handwriting, the effort it takes to like find an envelope and a stamp and put it in the mailbox. It's meaningful. Now, imagine a letter addressed to you or your small group or to our church, and it begins, Dear Knack, and it ends like this, Sincerely, your friend, Jesus. I mean, wow. There were seven letters written by Jesus, actually dictated uh, by Jesus and transcribed by his friend and follower, his disciple John. These were letters to seven churches in the first century. And uh, just as a way of context, I used to plan preaching series, you know, almost a year in advance. It, it helped me to kind of see laid out on the calendar what kinds of teaching topics would be covered in a given year. And then COVID happened. And, and planning that far ahead seemed like an eternity. It seemed like the world was changing so fast. News was updating daily. And the idea of predicting what, you know, what would be pertinent and and applicable kind of seemed foolish. It's been two years of, of, of holding things loosely, pivoting quickly. And the question is, you know, what would God want to show us as his people in this season in this time in 2022 and I kept coming back to these letters from Jesus letters to churches at at various levels of of health and fruitfulness they were specific letters for specific congregations at a specific time in history and and they are simultaneously instructive and applicable for us Today, um, for New Market Alliance, today, I would say even maybe especially today as we find ourselves in more chaos and uncertainty than we've seen in a generation. Now, do I personally want to tackle the book of Revelation? No, I do not. Uh, As most of you know, it's a notoriously difficult, sometimes puzzling book. The most difficult book in a Bible full of some difficult books. Um, Frankly, I feel a bit 
out of my depth. My, my ignorance might be on full display, but between the, the Spirit's illumination and, and help from Canada's own uh, Daryl Johnson. I'm going to put his picture up. He is my pound-for-pound, uh, pound go-to living expert on Revelation, and I, I think will be encouraged and enlightened and maybe deeply convicted, probably um, as we study these first three chapters in particular, I think you'll find these chapters more applicable maybe than ever. Now, of course, with each successive chapter in Revelation, it gets more perplexing. So I won't bite off more than I I can chew, but I want to invite you, uh, challenge you, I guess, just to read along with me in preparation for each week, um, just by reading that one letter to that one church, seven churches, seven weeks. It's only about five to seven verses for each letter. Just raise your hand if you would take that challenge up with me. Good, good. How about you folks at home? Good, good. I see Johan, and I see Romper Room, and as frustrating as Revelation can feel at times, What is it about this last book of the Bible that is also super compelling? Um, Could it be that no other book in the Bible do we see Jesus as, as fascinating, as captivating as we do in this last book? Um, No other book helps us to see Jesus as he is right now. No other book helps us to see Jesus as his role of champion, of warrior, victorious, um, awe-inspiring. No longer the lamb, now the lion. And I suppose no other book helps us see Jesus in a way that helps us overcome our fears. Let's talk about context for a minute. You may have heard this book referred uh, to slightly different ways. Some of you in your Bible right now, it says, The Revelation to John. Uh, but here's how it, it actually begins. The revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to be nitpicky here, but th- these are some important distinctions. The name of the book is also not Revelations. Uh, even though we do have these dramatic revelations in it, literally, the title of the book is translated from the apocalypse. The apocalypse. Now, when I say the word apocalypse... Uh, most of you, including myself, are thinking Mad Max. You're thinking, oh no, here come the zombies. You're thinking uh, Leo DiCaprio and an asteroid headed towards Earth. We talked a couple summers ago about that word simply meaning unveiling, okay? It was used in, in the theater world as in pulling back the curtain, um, the word meant um, opening up or, or more, po- more poetically, breaking through. In fact, you could call Revelation the, the breaking through of Jesus Christ. That has a nice ring to it. So it is really the revelation of Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ. The book is all about Jesus. John is, is the one writing this book, or rather this letter. It's the longest letter 
in the Bible. It's written somewhere between uh, 92 AD and 96 AD. So John, this former young disciple, he's in his 80s now. John is a prophet and John is a, a seer. But in this letter, you can really tell John is first and foremost a pastor. Uh, you, can, you can hear his pastor's heart. He, he's wanting to help the congregations that he loves to follow Jesus, to not live in fear, to overcome. That's what he wants for his people. That's what I want for you people as well, the people that I love. It's a, it's a book whose main thesis could be boiled down to things are not as they seem, or maybe more, uh, things are not only as they seem. John shows us that there is more to reality than just meets our five senses. I, I, I tried to look for my copy of this book, uh, This Present Darkness. Are you old enough to <clears throat> remember? Yeah. I'm not sure. I remember reading this as a Christian teen. I'm not sure if it sort of holds up liter literarily or theologically, um, but it did help me paint a picture through this dramatic story that there's this whole other unseen world, a reality beyond our reality. And folks, once that curtain is drawn back, you'll begin to watch the news differently. You'll, you'll begin to understand that there's this invisible battle going on. Maybe even right now in this, in this room, you'll find yourself making different choices about the use of your time and your finances. But most importantly, you'll start to see Jesus differently. And of course, what makes Revelation so challenging to understand and to apply in our life is, is the very thing that makes it so studied uh, and profound and powerful it's, it's all this rich symbolism that you find, uh, this imagery, which can, you know, at times border on cryptic to grotesque. And I, and I hope you are just a little bit relieved, a little bit encouraged to know that the first readers of this letter, the first hearers of this letter, didn't immediately understand everything either. In fact, even John himself didn't immediately understand everything that, that, that he saw and heard in this vision. Uh, a number of times, John has to ask the angel who guides him through this experience, wait, what, what's that? And who are they? And what the heck is going on? And, and but really, the Cole's notes of what John is seeing can be boiled down to this. Jesus is going to win. Jesus has already won. Jesus has already overcome. And I, and I really don't like, you know, how this bumper sticker cliche is often used. Like, I've read the end of the book and we win. But it's true, too. And it's quite a message to receive because this was a time when the church was really being beaten down. Persecution in the Roman Empire had already begun in AD 65 under uh, Emperor Nero. 
He literally is feeding Christians to the lions, right? And then Jerusalem is leveled in AD 70. Peter and Paul have been crucified. Uh, Timothy murdered. And here in AD 92, things actually get worse, if you can believe it. In that year, uh, Domitian, uh, the new ruler, had some 40,000 Christians killed. But that, even that number tells you something. The number of martyrs you know, says something about this little movement of Christianity that apparently had swept the empire in just a few decades. So Emperor uh, Domitian was a profoundly insecure man. All tyrants are, aren't they? In fact, um, all citizens were ordered to worship him as Lord and King. He, he renamed himself the Everlasting King. And everyone had to go to a temple which was built in his honor and they had to take a, a pinch of incense and throw it in the fire of the altar and say, uh, uh, Caesar Correus uh, or, or Caesar is Lord. Now for most people, um, that may have been inconvenient, but it's not really a big deal because most people of that time were, were polytheists anyways. So what's, you know, what's adding one more God to the mix? But for John, it, it's a huge deal, isn't it? Honor Caesar? Yeah. Uh, respect Caesar? Sure. Pay taxes to Caesar? Of course. Worship Caesar? Declare Caesar Lord? declare ultimate allegiance to him? No way. John wasn't going to do it. Uh, for John, for us, there is only one king of kings, only one Lord of lords, and, and he had John's absolute undivided allegiance. And John knows that one day it will actually be Caesar who will bow before Jesus. And so in his old age, um, he was not about to bow a knee to a fussy dictator. You know, one of the gifts of aging, I think, you young people can look forward to this, I think, with age, is just this less of an inclination to be a people pleaser, to, to compromise your values. Uh, John refuses to take that pinch of incense. He refuses to call Caesar Lord. And so from the emperor's perspective, ironically, that made John an atheist. And maybe more importantly, what they'd call a troublemaker. The, the unity of the state, the unity of the empire consisted on everybody worshiping Caesar. So John is arrested. He's banished to this prison island called Patmos, at 10 miles off the coast of, of what is now modern day Turkey. Sort of like Alcatraz Island, except Alcatraz is... 22 acres, Patmos is 44 square kilometers. And the Roman government would have all these prisoners work the rock quarries on Patmos and spend the rest of their lives as enemies of the state. I have this friend who is writing letters to someone in prison in Canada, like right now in 2022. And to my surprise, this is not just something in the movies. The letters coming in are all read by prison officials first. 
Uh, maybe I was naive. I, I, I was surprised by that. They're censored if necessary. Maybe even thrown out if it compromises security. Well, and this is important. In the same way, any letter that John would write from Patmos to the churches on the mainland are going to be read by prison censors, right? So, so what does he do? He writes in a style that allows him to convey uh, a message the Roman authorities won't understand. Or, or maybe they'd even dismiss it as sort of the crazy ramblings of an old guy who's under stress. The Revelation is a letter, but it is also a prophecy. And remember, you know, the biblical, in the biblical world, the, the word prophecy doesn't so much have to do with prediction as, as much as it does have to do with declaration. Okay, so the heart of biblical prophecy is not so much look what's coming, but more thus saith the Lord. Uh, and as we said, Revelation is an apocalypse, the Greek uh, uh, apocalypsis. It's, it's a genre of literature. And you can find other apocalyptic genres in, in parts of Daniel, in parts of Isaiah, parts of Ezekiel, parts of Zechariah. And apocalyptic literature has a number of these unique features. For, for example, people are often represented in the likeness of animals. Uh, historical events are often represented in the form of, of natural phenomenon like, like floods and earthquakes. Colors have meaning. Uh, numbers have meaning. You see in Revelation numbers like 3 and 7 and 10 and 12 and 666 and 144,000 and three and a half. They all mean something uh, more than meets the eye, right? Interestingly, 19 times we are told in Revelation, look, look. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Look, I'm alive forever and I have the keys of death in Hades. Look, a throne and the one who is sitting on it. Look, the lion has overcome. Look, a white horse and he who sits upon it is called faithful and true. Look, the lamb standing on Mount Zion. Look, the tabernacle of God is among the people and he will dwell with them. Um, I think it's because John the pastor wants us to really see what is going on here. Not just, you know, the reality of our circumstances, but the full unseen reality of Almighty Jesus in all his glory, in all his power. And if we could just see Jesus as he really is, man, we just might have the courage to overcome the powers of this age. So while John's on Patmos, Domitian's reign of terror intensified for the churches that John knew and loved. Churches in cities like Ephesus and Philadelphia and Smyrna and Laodicea. Maybe even as John looks out across the Aegean Sea, he can in his mind's eye see the faces of the Christians he knows uh, who are at this moment confused and discouraged and afraid and maybe ready to give up or give in. Christians who were losing their homes and businesses, taken in the middle of the night, executed. 
not only is there persecution, but there is also this heresy and, and immorality that's gaining traction in a number of these congregations. Man, is this starting to sound a little bit like relatable uh, in our context of 2022? If it's not, I don't know what to tell you. So in chapter one, uh, let's just dig into it. John says he was, in verse 10, in the spirit on the Lord's day. I picture him worshiping in the power of the Holy Spirit on a Sunday morning. Maybe he had been crying out in prayer for the people in these churches. And how does the Lord respond? By telling John to have the elders form a task force on the Christian response to totalitarianism. No. By giving John a set of new programs, maybe an Alpha, maybe a Hillsong campus. No. Giving uh, John a strategy by which Christians could slowly take over public office. No. How does Jesus respond? He lifts the cover. He pulls back the curtain. Jesus responds with a revelation, with an apocalypse, an unveiling of the unseen reality. Jesus responds by giving John and us a powerful vision of himself. John of all people, he needs a revelation of Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He, he was a friend of Jesus. He could recall to mind all those iconic memories and pictures of Jesus. He'd remember Jesus turning 120 gallons of water into vintage wine. Uh, he'd, he'd have the picture of Jesus feeding 5,000 people with, with five loaves and two fish. Um, he'd have the image of Jesus calming the storm with just a word. Uh, there's a picture of Jesus maybe crying over the loss of his friend Lazarus, but then raising him from the dead. Of course, there's that picture of Jesus himself outside an empty tomb. And every one of those pictures would be in John's personal memory bank of, of these iconic images. You know, maybe we all even have this favorite image, this favorite version of Jesus. You ever see Will Ferrell as Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights? No, me neither. It's, uh, <laughs> it's inappropriate. But in that movie I hear, he only prays to Christmas baby Jesus with his golden fleece diapers and his tiny little fat balled up fist. And his partner, Cal, liked to just picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, you know, I want to be formal, but I like to party. And I mean, it's silly, but we, we kind of do a bit of that. Um, when we pray to Jesus, uh, when we think about Jesus, we have maybe our own iconic image of him. And now though, in AD 92, as the world is in chaos, as the church is in chaos, um, Christians are gripped with fear. What John needs, maybe what we need today, is a revelation of Jesus. Um, to see Jesus as he is now, in all his power and strength and glory, and folks, I would submit that that's what we need to get a vision of today, desperately. Oh, Jesus, give us a fresh revelation of you this morning. 
And so John begins documenting his experience. And notice the words he uses in verse 10. I heard a voice behind me. Okay, so this experience is not just in his head. It it was something external to himself. It's something outside himself. Um, There was a voice behind him, and he turned to see the voice, verse 11 says. So whether or not soldiers are guarding him, or if he has a partner in his prison cell, um, we don't know if they heard it too. We aren't told. But if they were there, at very least, they would have seen John turn his body to face something outside himself. You know, I was encouraged, maybe a little bit envious at our Hearing God seminar to learn that there were different people who believe they have, they have heard God in an audible way. And I know that's not the normative Christian experience, but it is one of the ways that Jesus has chosen to reveal himself, even in 2022. So verse 12, John says, I turned to see a voice. I love that phrasing. I turned to see a voice. And when he did turn, he saw a person, the same person that he lived with in Palestine some 60 years ago, the same person on whose chest he had laid on, but now so different, so much bigger. And he, he says, I turned and saw one like a son of man. John is, is intentional in his wording here. He's using this Old Testament term that Daniel used to describe this towering figure 100 years previous. Uh, Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14. Now, in light of this Daniel vision, the phrase... Um, one like a son of man, refers to this pre-existent, eternal one who comes to establish a, a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. Now, check this out. Um, in, in verse 13, later in this encounter, John is going to learn that these seven lampstands represent the seven churches that Jesus has a message for. Now, here's what blessed me. Okay, it says Jesus is in the middle. Okay, the glorified son is not hovering above, looking down. He's not on the outside, looking in. He's in the middle, right in the middle of these churches. It's it's why in each of these seven churches, Jesus says, I know. I know what is happening among you. I know your hard work. I know your struggles. I know your pain. I know your emptiness. I'm there in the middle of it with you. And listen, folks, the risen and living Jesus lives among his churches. He is living and among us at Newmarket Alliance Church. He is is moving among us right now. Amen? He is not an absentee landlord, kind of exercising his authority, you know, via remote control. He is present among the congregations of his people. He is present here today. And so these seven churches of Asia were, were facing, you know, varying degrees of persecution but I would submit to you that, that, that the greatest danger wasn't the persecution itself. It never really is. But rather spiritual complacency. 
That is believers who were, who were drifting into the, the culture and the values of Babylon. You know, Babylon um, at that moment in history really was, was Rome. Babylon has stood for many different kingdoms and cultures throughout history. You, we are no doubt living in our own Western Babylon in 2022. Now, often the first thing we notice about someone, whether rightly or wrongly, when, when we first meet them, is their clothing. And the first thing that catches John's attention is the way that Jesus is dressed. That's because, once again, even in um, even the clothing in Revelation is, is making a statement. And so there are clues here. If we saw a woman wearing, you know, a white jacket and she has got green scrubs and she's got a stethoscope around her neck, you know she's a, <laughs> she's a doctor. <laughs> you see a dude, he's got dark blue pants and a stripe and he's got a, a badge and a gun and a walkie-talkie, you know he's a, Police. Yeah, there's a lot of comedians in this church, and there's only one comedian here, folks. All right. <laughs> but John says in verse 13, I saw one like a son of man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. So, what sort of statement is Jesus making with this clothing? Well, first, the robe is a priest's robe, and, and it's the kind of robe that a high priest like Aaron would have wore. Well, Jesus is our great high priest. The word priest in Latin is pontifex. And it's actually an engineering term that means bridge builder, bridge burglar, bridge builder. And so a priest is one who builds bridges between two sides of a canyon. Come on, is Jesus not the greatest bridge builder of all. He's the one who bridges the infinite chasm between God and between us. And he's qualified to do it because he knows both sides of the canyon. He knows the human side because he was fully human. He knows the God side because he is fully God. And what about this gold sash across his chest? Um, I tried to look for a a decent picture of, of this and there, there was not a great, you know, non-Sunday school felt board image of this. But in my study of the first chapter, it turns out that this image would have been more readily obvious to first century listeners. Um, when a belt or sash was worn around the waist, it meant the person was preparing for work. When a sash was worn across the chest, the person was resting in the accomplishment of a task. Oh, come on, that'll preach. John is being reminded that the salvation work of Jesus Christ is finished. That one perfect sacrifice has been offered. He's done everything that needs to be done in order for us to have life now and beyond the grave. But the robe is also a king's robe. And John is being reminded that the high priest is our king, enthroned above all authorities. He is the one to whom all other kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers will one day give an account. If only 
we could see him the way John sees him. And when John describes the rest of this encounter, you know, how can he possibly even convey it in human words, what he's seeing? Even, even our symbolism and our imagery doesn't suffice. So John keeps using the word like. His head and hair were like. His, his feet were like. His voice was like. His face was like. His eyes were like fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. That's a reference to Daniel prophecy. Actually, an answer to the Daniel prophecy where all other kingdoms rest on shaky feet, but the kingdom of Jesus rests on feet that endure forever. It says his voice like the sound of many waters. What does that sound like to you? I imagine it, this awe-inspiring power and eloquence. It's a voice that drowns out all other voices. It drowns out lies. And it says he held the seven stars. We'll know later that those seven stars represent the seven angels or the messengers of the seven churches. But I think it's also a picture of his awe-inspiring majesty, the one who holds the stars, you know, the one who, who's got the whole world in him. No? Okay. Well, we'll do that later. And then verse 16, out of his mouth comes this sharp two-edged sword. It's the, it's the word that proceeds from his mouth of the Son of Man cuts through all the nonsense. And his face, his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Again, can you just feel John reaching for some way to convey the unconveyable? And this brilliant, awesome face was shining on John. You know, in the Old Testament, that is the greatest blessing imaginable. Let your face shine upon us. And when I saw him, he says, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. Yeah, like, no wonder, seeing the reality of the glorified, magnified, holy, victorious Jesus would be so humbling. It ought to humble us. Um, given who Jesus reveals himself to be, maybe that's even a response that ought to be happening more frequently among us. Just face down. In verse 17, he says, he laid his right hand on me. Amazing. The same hand that holds the stars, reaches out and touches John. You know, Jesus is not aloof. He, he reaches out and touches us. And listen to what he says, verse 17 and 18. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Literally, Jesus says, stop being afraid. Why? Because Jesus Christ has walked into the gaping jaws of the greatest enemy there is. He faced the cross. He faced every adversary and demon and unholy power. And he let death even take him captive. And then he burst out of prison and carried the prison keys. And so the, the disciples of Jesus don't need to fear Nero and don't need to fear Domitian, uh, even if they put Jesus' followers into that prison of death, Jesus, the living one, comes with the keys and sets them free. In fact, Jesus has stolen the chief weapon 
that that evil bully uses against us. Jesus has stolen the weapon of fear, okay? Fear can be powerful. Fear can keep us from doing what is right. It can, it can make us do what we know is wrong. And all fear really is, is, is rooted in the fear of death, the fear of criticism, the fear of rejection, the fear of financial loss, the fear of pain. They are all, in essence, a fear of death. And so let these words just minister to you today. Jesus says, I hold the keys of death. I am alive and I have the keys. And they're standing in the midst of these seven stands, these seven churches. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, Jesus' basic message is to empower the churches to overcome. How do we overcome? By having a clear vision, maybe even a bit of a redeemed imagination to see Jesus as he is right now, to see our present troubles in light of his victorious future. If we could only just get a glimpse of Jesus as he is right now, he's saying, dear Knack, I'm with you. I, I have overcome. You can overcome in me. Will you stand with me? Jesus, would you give us a fresh vision of yourself today? May we see you as you truly are, high and lifted up, in control, reigning and ruling, fighting on our behalf. Our warrior king, embodying both power and tenderness, living Lord, as we even dare to, to make our way through this sometimes uh, baffling letter, uh, will you please help us? Help us understand why you've spoken in this unique way. Help us understand what it is you're wanting us to know and do even now. Help us to be challenged and encouraged and convicted. And most of all, please help us meet you in it, Jesus. You are the ultimate subject of these letters of this book. Give us a revelation of you, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Worthy is the